Welcome to the Liberty Cafe, where oppression is on the menu. Hi, this is Bill Peacock, and welcome to episode 66 of the Liberty Cafe. Really pleased to have you with us today, whether it's your first episode or your 66th episode. It's, it's great to be able to, to, to work with all of you out there and with our sponsor, Texas Scorecard, on you know, ferreting out oppression, uh, in, in particularly in public policy world that, that well, all of us operate in to some extent, but uh, the public policy work, world that I and a lot of us at Texas Scorecard have been operating in for a long time. And uh, because it's everywhere, you know, and it takes a little work sometimes for us to really see it truly as it's coming to us. So grateful to have you with us today on episode 66 and really excited to have with us today our guest on the Liberty Cafe. Sometimes I just ramble on for for a while, but today we've got uh, a great guest with us today, Chuck DeVore, and he's going to talk to us about well, a variety of issues. We'll see where it goes, but we're going to start off with energy. Just a quick bio on, on Chuck. So uh, Chuck uh, works at the Texas Public Policy Foundation. He's the vice president for national initiatives there and also is directing their uh, election protection project, which is really important for all of us to that they are doing this to help expose some of the problems that we see with election integrity, not just in Texas, but across the country. He has focused on a lot of his work over the years on energy and tax policy and regulatory policies, particularly as just say involve the the economy and economic growth and prosperity. Um, he's hangs out on Fox News a lot. He was just on uh, Laura Ingram recently. Uh, used to be a California state rep uh, before he got term limited out, and um, it was even way back in the Reagan era Pentagon. So he, he's got a lot of background experience in this. And, you know, I, I don't he's written some books and, you know, I don't normally get too starry eyed because I've been hanging around politics a while and and uh, met a lot of different people. But I kind of get that when it, when it comes to Chuck, because he's a novelist as well. And, and he wrote this book called China Attacks. And I read it and then my son and I read it together. And uh, it, it's just amazing. He wrote this book a while back. I can't remember exactly when he can tell us in a second here, but, but you read it today and you're going, wow, this is what's going on in the world today. So Chuck's not just a policy expert, but he's a prophet as well. So anyway, with all that introduction, welcome to the Liberty Cafe, Chuck. Hey, great to be with you, Bill. Yeah, great. Um, when, when did you write China Attacks? I researched it. I started to, to research it in 1998. Uh, I wrote most of it in 1999. Uh, and then we were able to um, uh, roll it out into uh, publication in 2000. Okay. Well, if, if we get uh, past the uh, the energy talk that I want us to have today and still have a little bit of time left, I'd like to talk a little bit about Russia and China and national security, that kind of thing. So, But, but first I want to get on to the, the energy because I, I saw you wrote an article uh, online the other day and about how energy policies are, are working or bringing about really civil unrest, domestic unrest and, you know, a number of places in the world. And, and I, th I found it really fascinating, but, uh, but I thought, I'd, so I thought I'd start off asking you this question and, and 
please take it in the spirits it, it is uh, asking. So your first sentence in, in this in this piece said, policies that make energy scarce and expensive promoted by wealthy elites result in domestic unrest while diminishing a nation's ability to vigorously pursue its national interest. So knowing that you're writing a lot in this case, when you're talking about these policies about the promotion of renewable energy, it, it kind of sounds like you're saying that, you know, efforts to, to, to save the world by, by transitioning from, from world atmosphere, destroying oil and gas to, to, plentiful renewable energy is being pushed on us by the elite and is de- destroying society and culture. kind of sounds like, a, you know, one of those conspiracy theory things. I mean, well, that's probably not what's going on, but can you kind of give us a why you're why you even came at it from this perspective in the first place? Yeah. So I, I think that there's two parts to this. The first part is, uh, you know, the availability of affordable uh, energy, uh, just by itself, right? Completely in isolation of any other factors. Uh, And that's why I wrote about uh, in that piece about uh, the recent unrest in Kazakhstan, uh, unrest about 11 years ago in Egypt, uh, which I had uh, predicted in the pages of the uh, uh, Investor's Business uh, Daily uh, a couple of weeks before uh, President Mubarak was overthrown. In both cases, what you had is a large a population of people who weren't particularly well off uh, and a government that wanted to do what it could to make some of the basic necessities of life more affordable. So the governments in both cases subsidized uh, uh, cooking fuels in the case of Egypt and in the case of uh, uh, Kazakhstan, uh, liquefied or pardon me, compressed natural gas and other uh, gases uh, that allowed people to, for example, convert their vehicles to natural gas uh, because it was a lot cheaper than, than gasoline. Uh, and so in both cases, when the government realized that they couldn't keep doing this, it was costing too much money, and there was a lot of black market activity where people were reselling for a higher amount of the fuel that was subsidized by the, by the government, uh, in both cases, when the government ended that policy, there was unrest almost immediately. Uh, in the case of Egypt, it overthrew the government. In the case of Kazakhstan, it it did result in the the overthrow or the replacement of several uh, ministers, uh, but the government more or less stayed intact. It, it did have to significantly adjust, though. And so that's the, the first part of it. In other words, <clears throat> that's kind of the proof, if you will, that energy uh, and the, the easy availability, the affordability of energy is by itself a very important thing. Then we go to the second part of the equation, which you alluded to, which is, uh, you know, what's going on, especially in the first world nations, uh, the U.S., Germany in particular, uh, England, uh, where you have these policies that say uh, fossil fuels are bad. Uh, In the case of uh, Germany, that would also include nuclear power. Uh, And we have to replace our use of fossil fuels with these periodic, unreliable sources of energy like uh, wind turbines and rooftop solar or, or utility-grade solar. Uh, and the problem with that is that the more you get, uh, the more difficult it is to keep a grid stable, to keep the lights on, and the more expensive things get. Because if you do want to keep that grid stable and keep the lights on, you got to pay for a lot of thermal uh, capacity. That means you know traditional, uh, for example, natural gas generators 
that have to be there and be available when it's not windy or, or when it's at nighttime. Uh, and so the more and more wind and solar you add, generally, generally, the more and more costly that electricity is going to get. So I don't think it's necessarily a conspiracy. You just have a, a bunch of uh, elites that have uh, decided uh, that um, somehow uh, if we reduce emissions in the West, never mind uh, sub-Saharan Africa and India and China, but if somehow we reduce emissions in the West, we can somehow reduce the temperature of the planet. Uh, and I guess India and China and sub-Saharan Africa will just follow along because of our moral example. Uh, of course, I don't think that's going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, you start off with a policy where uh, the government is subsidizing the fuels that we're already using, that everybody's already using. And, and But when we move to renewable energy, then all of a sudden they're, they're subsidizing the fuels we're not using in order to try and get us to move over to these new things. Uh, and so that, that's kind of a different shift, but you can see, I can see where, you know, people get upset in both instances in one sense, but, but how does subsidizing renewable energy lead to an increase in prices that might upset people Sure, like the, the policies you were talking about down in, in Egypt? Yeah, so uh, it's it's important to note at the outset that because of our tax code, um, you know, critics of fossil fuels can claim that there's some degree of subsidy for all energy, uh, and I won't dispute that. What I will say, however, uh, is that if you look at the amount of energy produced, uh, you know, per kilowatt hour, for example, the subsidies for wind and solar are multiple, multiple times, you know, hundreds or thousands of times more than they are. Uh, for fossil fuels, which benefit from uh, tax provisions that frankly benefit all kinds of manufacturing, not just uh, uh, fossil fuel extraction. Uh, and so what ends up happening is because of these heavy federal and frequently state subsidies and mandates, you end up with uh, more and more and more periodic wind and solar uh, being constructed across America, especially in Texas. Uh, and then the challenge with that is that we don't attach a value for reliability along with the construction of this new capacity. Uh, and so as a result, uh, as your grid gets more and more wind and solar on it, you're going to have more and more periods where you have a significant overproduction of wind and solar that the grid can't even use, where prices will go negative uh, so that if you're, let's say, a nuclear power plant and you remain connected to the grid, you're going to have to pay the grid to take your power uh, if you want to stay connected. Uh, conversely, there are periods uh, as you get more and more wind and solar uh, when they're not producing much at all. And at that point, you have to have uh, either voluntary uh, demand reduction, meaning like if you're a, a factory, you got to shut down. Uh, and there's deals that will allow that factory to have lower electricity costs if they are willing to shut down from time to time. And if things get really bad, then as a residential customer, your lights may go out. You may not be able to do your laundry or your air conditioning may shut off. Uh, and so the challenge is that we in the West aren't used to that, right? We're used to our power being on all the time unless there is extraordinary circumstances like a, a terrible summer heat wave or a 100-year winter storm event. Uh, and so the challenge is, as you get more and more wind and solar and you have longer uh, periods where you have this vulnerability, uh, you have to have 
more and more money go into backup sources of electricity that end up not being used very often. And if something isn't used very often, what that means is that the capital that you put in to building that facility and to maintaining it right. uh, and to having operators there ready to turn it on, uh, it's not paying for itself much of the time. It's just sitting there. But you have to you have to pay for it, right? You have to pay the, the interest payments and the principal payments on the money that you borrowed to create it. And so that gets caught, passed on to the grid and to the consumers. Uh, and it's all been all kind of fun and games so far because we haven't had an enormous amount of penetration of wind and solar into our grid. But it's getting to the point where things are, are starting to be noticed. So, for example, out in California, uh, they had, uh, as of last October, when I looked at the Energy Information uh, Administration's data, uh, they had the highest electricity costs in the lower 48. Uh, normally, several states in the Northeast have more expensive electricity than does California. That's the way it's been historically for decades. But this last October, California was the most expensive in the contiguous United States. And it's not a shock, right? Because yeah. California, like Texas, is a leader in the use of these periodic sources of electricity. Yeah. And I, I want to get to California and, and then to Texas, uh, because that's obviously what applies to us more than in other places. But I would like you to talk about this in the context of Germany. You talk about that a little bit in your piece. And, you know, can you explain what the challenges are there? Not not necessarily from a grid standpoint, but also from the, the possibilities of civil disturbances and unrest. Right. So Germany right now, like much of Europe, is suffering from uh, soaring electricity prices uh, and uh, soaring natural gas prices. Uh, now, a fair number of Germans still get their heat through a central heating system. Uh, that's uh, steam. Uh, frequently, that's created with coal. Uh, and so far, those individuals aren't seeing huge increases in their in their heating bills. But many other Germans with newer uh, homes are seeing uh, amazing increases, uh, you know, doubling, tripling. Uh, natural gas storage in Europe is also uh, at a historic low right now. Uh, and this comes at a time when uh, Europe gets most of its natural gas from Russia. And the pipelines that feed Western Europe's natural gas uh, use transit Ukraine. And the challenge with that, of course, is that Russia and Ukraine appear to be very close to a conflict, at which point it's very likely that the major natural gas pipelines into Western Europe from Russia will go down, which is one of the reasons why the Germans and uh, Putin's Russia would like to see the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which is more or less complete, but supposedly has been held up for some technical reasons. Uh, this Nord Stream 2 pipeline goes underneath the Baltic Sea from uh, St. Petersburg uh, underwater and into Germany. Uh, and it thus it bypasses this uh, likelihood of conflict in Ukraine. Now, the problem with Germany, which is the most uh, consequential uh, European nation from uh, the standpoint of its economy and its power, the, the problem is, is that Germany has now placed itself completely at the mercy of Russia when it comes to their energy needs. Uh, they have been transitioning something that they call the, I'm going to get this wrong, and I know there's a lot of German speakers in Texas, but it's the energy wind, uh, which is like this energy transition that they've been undergoing for many, many years. Uh, and what they've been doing is stepping away from coal-fired power, even wanting to reduce uh, natural gas and go all in into wind and solar, 
Uh, they've already had a fair amount of hydropower in Germany. And interestingly enough, also uh, decommissioning all their nuclear power plants. So they decommissioned uh, two of them at the end of this uh, last year, a few months ago, and they only have two left. They used to have a fair amount of nuclear power on their grid. By the end of 2022, they're not supposed to have any nuclear power at all. And that's because of the Green Party's influence, uh, and they're part of the coalition right now. Uh, and that uh, animosity to nuclear power goes clear back to the Cold War. Uh, so it isn't entirely environmental roots. There's some uh, Cold War um, nuclear freeze or nuclear disarmament uh, 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 rationale that goes into that opposition to nuclear power in Germany. Now, interestingly enough, France has announced that it's going to build more nuclear power plants. Uh, France makes a fair amount of money by selling Germany uh, electricity. And frankly, this is probably a good business move from France's standpoint. Uh, but the, the, the point is, uh, Bill, is that Germany, with its huge economy and with its central uh, and very important role in NATO, the NATO alliance, has put itself completely at the mercy of, of Russia. And one last thing about that. Um, the, the last um, socialist, openly socialist uh, chancellor of Germany, Gerhard Schroeder, uh, was on the board after he left, being the leader of Germany for four or five years. He was on the board of Gazprom, which is Putin's state-owned natural gas uh, company, the biggest in the world of its type. Uh, and he did that for about five or six years. Uh, and now he's uh, on the board. In fact, I think he was the chairman of the board. And now he's on Rosneft, which is the Russian-owned, uh, state-owned oil uh, company. Uh, so he went from Gazprom to Rosneft. So that would be like the equivalent. Imagine this. Imagine, uh, maybe it wouldn't be too hard to imagine, uh, but imagine uh, Barack Obama or, uh, or, or uh, Donald Trump uh, being on the board of like a giant Chinese uh, uh, computer chip manufacturing company. <laughs> I mean, it's the same thing. Right. And uh, yet somehow the Germans don't bat an eye about it. Yeah, it, it so so you you got this situation sounds like in Germany where there's people just may be con, upset because their electricity bills are skyrocketing, but then you also have this this international instability that who knows where where that's going to lead. Um, well, so let's transition back to America and let's start over in uh, California. I thought one of the really interesting things in your piece was you talk you were talking about the. Um, instability or contention within the Democratic Party out there. I mean, when we think about renewable energy and Democrats, we, we typically think they're all in on this, but that doesn't seem to be the case out in California. Can you explain that a little bit to us? Yeah, you're, you're beginning to see uh, more and more of a division uh, between Democrats that represent uh, very wealthy constituencies uh, and Democrats that represent uh, working Americans, uh, oftentimes immigrant communities. Uh, and you're beginning to see this, this division uh, manifest itself, I think, more and more uh, as time goes on, as electricity prices go up and up, uh, as the price of fuel goes up, uh, you know, people who commute long distances to be able to put food on their family's table. Uh, and it's also the case, uh, Bill, that if you look at uh, Americans and what they earn. So you look at, for example, the quintiles of income, you know, one through five, with five being the highest, right? What you'll see is as people earn more money, 
the share of the money they earn that goes towards paying for energy, whether it's heating or cooling your home or transportation or electricity, the share that you pay for energy goes down the more you make. And so it's also the case then that many of these same people who represent these very well-off districts, uh, which in California, by the way, generally are near the Pacific Ocean, which then kind of adding insult to injury means that their heating and cooling days are a lot less than people who have to live further inland where it gets a lot hotter and a lot colder uh, during the summers and winters. And so their constituents who, who like to virtue signal and, and like to think that they're, they're um, uh, you know, good people trying to save the planet, uh, their policies are pushing electricity and gasoline and natural gas uh, out of the reach of average people. Uh, and so what you're seeing then is uh, in the case of California, where you've got super majorities of Democrats in both the Assembly and the State Senate, uh, you're seeing this increasing division uh, between Democrats who want to go all in uh, and want to um, uh, have even a, a, a greener grid with even higher prices for uh, energy. And those Democrats who understand that uh, not only are their constituents not able to afford energy anymore, but many of them are likely to lose their jobs as companies seek to relocate out of state to places where it's a lot cheaper to be able to do the same activity. Okay. Well, you, you've often, you've spent a lot of your career here in Texas anyway, comparing California and Texas. And, and as you pointed out over that time, um, you know, there's often a big contrast between the two, but, but sometimes you, you can see where there's a connection in, in not so good a way. And, and California kind of serves as a, um, uh, as a warning, if you will, uh, for Texas and what's going on here. So I, I, let's, let's bring it home to Texas now. So as you pointed out, Texas leads the nation in wind energy here in wind energy, the, the amount of wind energy coming out of turbines, wind turbines, we're not quite so there in solar, but it's growing dramatically right now. H how did the oil and gas capital of the world uh, in conservative Texas wind up in this situation? Yeah. So the, I think both states kind of started out at a similar uh, place, right? You had uh, federal a tax uh, treatment that uh, allowed for people, for example, to install wind turbines and make money, uh, even if they had to pay the grid to take their, their electricity, which didn't become so much of a thing until <clears throat> more recent years. Uh, so number one, you had federal policy. Uh, number two, uh, both states, and, and, and Bill, you probably know this better than do I, but I certainly know in California, there were mandates that were put in by the Public Utilities Commission and by law, uh, both independently working together, sometimes one-upping each other, uh, that required more and more and more use of renewable power. As I recall from your own uh, scholarship, Bill, didn't Texas also start to have some sort of a renewable mandate uh, 20 uh, years ago or so? Yeah, it started back in uh, 1999 when they passed the big bill that brought competition right. to the grid. Right. And so I think the big difference, though, is that California kept adding to their mandate and eventually Texas, uh, more or less, uh, that mandate became uh, 
irrelevant or ineffectual or they repealed it. But nevertheless, because of the generous federal subsidies and in, in Texas, uh, additional uh, subsidies at the uh, with property tax abatements that allowed um, uh, people installing, for example, wind turbines to get a, a very generous uh, property tax uh, treatment so they wouldn't have to pay uh, property taxes on the very expensive capital that they installed on often um, relatively barren rangeland. And so uh, now that, of course, uh, we, we think will likely lapse at the end of this coming year uh, due to a legislative victory this last legislative session. Although so, didn't the Speaker of the Texas House just a week or so ago say they're going to find something to replace Chapter 313? Well, he, he, he very well, he, he may have, but it's a lot, as you know, harder to uh, figure out how to replace something that's died rather than keeping alive something that's still around. Good point. So, and so you've got these economic incentives. And then the, the last thing that's caused um, this imbalance to grow in Texas. So I think where you get the the departure point between the two most populous states is that California just kept doubling down and doubling down uh, over the last uh, 15 years, whereas Texas more or less backed away from its um, uh, policy to add more and more renewable. And essentially, the system was going on autopilot. And and the reason why you started to see and continue to see uh, more and more renewable capacity put on uh, the grid is that we have never properly, and by the way, this is pretty much the case all over the world, we have never properly uh, valued reliability. And so as a result, uh, you have people, for example, installing, uh, let's say, uh, a gigawatt of wind turbine power. Uh, Now, just because the nameplate says it can make a gigawatt doesn't mean that that's what it's really going to do all the time. It'll probably make, you know, maybe one third of, of that over the course of a year. Uh, sometimes it'll be producing close to the nameplate, and sometimes it'll be producing nothing. Uh, and so then the problem is, is that how do you uh, financially uh, account for that? Do you tell the uh, people who are generating uh, this uh, periodic unreliable power that they have to, for example, build massive battery storage farms, uh, that they can capture the electricity and, and make sure that it's there to power the grid when it's not windy or not sunny? Or do you, for example, force them to uh, have a contract with a natural gas peaker plant so that when the winds die down, the peaker, peaker plant can, can pick up the, uh, the slack? Because if you don't do that, what ends up happening is that unreliability gets socialized out onto the rest of the grid. And the rest of us, all Texans, then pay for that unreliability in two different ways. We pay for the unreliability by having an increased exposure to blackouts uh, that harm uh, families, could kill people, uh, could harm the economy. Uh, And uh, in addition, uh, we end up uh, paying for the uh, backup, uh, paying for uh, the reliability, paying for those natural gas peaker plants uh, that end up being used only a few hours a year, uh, but are used to keep the grid stable and and keep uh, the lights on. Yeah. So uh, obviously, um, we've seen tremendous growth on renewable energy here in Texas. And you wrote in your piece, and and I've written, and other people have written uh, about the 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 effects of the of this rapid growth and of renewable energy on the Texas blackouts last winter. Um, 
about a year ago, as a matter of fact, from right now. And, you know, Texans were, I mean, as far as I know, you know, I've spent much of my career warning that Texas is going to become like California and New York when it comes to uh, renewable, when it comes to energy, if we keep following this path. And, um, but as far as I know, Texas or California never had a blackout like we had in Texas, right? That, that was the worst one that I'm aware of. I mean, New York had some pretty bad ones. New York City had some pretty bad ones. But statewide like this, I, I've never seen anything like that yet. Yeah, you know, it, it. getting back to the point of your article, I didn't see a really huge revolt in Texas. I mean, you, you think about, you know, the United States compared to some other states like up in up in Canada now, we got these truckers all over the place, and the United States truckers are kind of thinking about joining them. And but other than maybe an insurrection or two occasionally, you know, Americans don't tend to really, at least recently, haven't really tended to you know step up and and try and hold their account their governments accountable through civil unrest. Do you see anything like that happening in Texas in the near future? And if so, where would that come from? Right. So I think that in Texas or California or any other state, uh, the issue is what what's the circumstance of this uh, blackout? What's the circumstance of of seeing our power grid become more and more like some uh, corrupt, mismanaged third world country where, you know, the power is on eight hours a day at random times, whether you need it or not. Uh, and, and so I think that from the standpoint of the Texas public, there was a certain understanding that what we saw during uh, February of t- 2021 uh, was a close to a 100-year polar vortex storm event. Uh, so this was an unusual event for Texas. Uh, you had uh, very, very low temperatures over a course of four days. Uh, so uh, compared to the prior winter storm that hit pretty hard 12 years earlier, uh, you had uh, very low temperatures for twice as many days and the temperatures were about 10 degrees colder than they were 12 years earlier. And so that led to a lot of systemic failures that were frankly made worse by the fact uh, that our grid over the last few years added about 20,000 megawatts of power from mostly wind and some solar, while losing about 4,000 megawatts of, of capacity from traditional thermal, mostly coal. Uh, and nobody, nobody, uh, speaking logically anyway, can say uh, that, let's say we doubled that. Let's say instead we added 40,000 megawatts of wind and solar over the last few years and subtracted 8,000 megawatts of solar. Would the blackout have been worse or better? Well, it would have been far worse. Uh, and so what you see with the, the apologists for wind and solar uh, is they'll say, well, you know, it, it, it performed about what was expected during the storm. Uh, most of your outages uh, were in, in thermal and natural gas and coal and nuclear. And it's true from a total capacity, yes. However, look during the blackout and you'll see that about 60% of the energy during key hours uh, of the blackout came from thermal power, while at the same time, uh, approximately one or two percent of capacity uh, was being generated by uh, the enormous amount of wind and solar we have in the state. In other words, it was almost zero in terms of its contribution to the grid. So, in other words, you could have had a hundred times more of it, and things still would have been bad. One of my favorite uh, things to say is that you know because the grid all went down about one o'clock in the morning on that Monday morning, and um, and. 
solar wasn't contributing anything to it. And people say, well, you wouldn't expect it to. And I said, that's my point exactly, right? It's not there when you need it. Just like wind isn't there on August summer afternoons at five o'clock, right? Right. So, you know, a good example is our most recent storm that we had this year. Um, what what happened with this storm, unlike the, the storm last year, uh, was not only was there not very much icing on the wind turbines, but the wind kept blowing at a pretty decent uh, speed. Uh, and so wind actually produced more uh, than was expected during uh, that uh, winter cold event. Uh, so it was very different than it was a year earlier, where after the front blew through, you had kind of a still, uh, uh, you know, a stilling of the wind. And, you know, to the extent that the turbines could have operated, if they didn't, if they hadn't been iced up, uh, they didn't have the wind to push them around anyway. Uh, so I think that's, um, I think to get back to your point, Bill, though, is that Americans are fairly forgiving when you have at least one event that can be mostly traced to extreme weather. Uh, and certainly there were lessons learned. There's been a, a modest amount of, uh, of winterization that's occurred. There was a few lessons learned that allowed us to uh, make things a little better for the next time. One of the interesting things, and I'm sure your viewers, your listeners will really love this one. Uh, a lot of the uh, curtailment, a lot of the loss of gas uh, last year during the storm occurred because of an Obama-era regulation that uh, required the uh, repowering of these natural gas compressors that used to run on the natural gas that was actually produced nearby from the gas fields uh, and switching them over to electric because it was better for the planet. And so you have this case where the, the very machines that move the natural gas out of our gas fields and into the turbines that generate electricity, they shut down because they lost electricity. <laughs> and so, so that's one of those things that, you know, one of those inconvenient truths, I think, that the, uh, that the environmental left didn't want uh, people to know about. Yeah. Well, well, we'll see where it goes from here, Chuck, uh, on all this. I, it, my opinion, you, you talked about modest winterizations. I, I think when it comes to reforming the system to deal with the other problems besides just cold, uh, the, the Texas legislature and the PUC have done next to nothing to address the real core issues, which is largely government intervention and particularly government mandates and subsidies for renewable energy. So we'll, we'll see what Texans do with that in the near future. Uh, before we leave... Um, I got to ask you this question. So here we are, you know, China making all this noise over there about Taiwan and they're doing all these sorties and flying all these planes and ships and, and, and you know, about the, the, the strait between Taiwan and China. And, you know, and Taiwan is somebody that we have some, some obligations to over time. But then here is the United States over here seemingly making trouble with Russia, right? Well, the, even the president of the Ukraine is telling us there's no problem. And a lot of European folks are telling us there's no problem. We're saying there's this huge problem with Russia. And we're, it looks like we're, we're fixing to have a major war with the two most powerful nations in the world on two fronts. What are we getting ourselves into here? Yeah, that's um, uh, the, the challenge, of course, is often you don't know until the worst case happens. Um, you know, it may very well be that nothing will happen over the next year. Uh, on the other hand, um, when you have uh, hundreds of thousands of people with weapons and uh, you have 
the kind of the confusion or the fog of, of battle. Uh, and you have, frankly, a, a president that by all uh, appearances uh, seems to be in significant cognitive decline. Uh, you know, anything could happen. Uh, you could you could wake up tomorrow uh, to uh, uh, no Internet, for example, because it's been taken down by Russia or China as part of their uh, military operations against uh, Ukraine and, and Taiwan. So uh, this is a very fraught time. Uh, I think in the case of Taiwan, it's very important that uh, Americans understand that what's really at stake here are two uh, very um, important considerations. Number one is that Taiwan is a representative uh, democracy. Uh, they uh, have uh, human rights. They have rule of law. Uh, they have free and fair elections. And interestingly enough, uh, the Chinese Communist Party claims that all of those things are are Western forms of government and that are somehow alien to the Chinese people. Uh, and yet they all, at the same time say that Taiwan is, is China. So you can't have it both ways. Either, either the Chinese people are capable of self-governance uh, and rule of law and free and fair elections, uh, or they're not. If they are, well, then that means that the Chinese Communist Party has some really serious credibility issues vis-a-vis -vis the free, uh, freely elected government uh, 90 miles across the uh, ocean in Taiwan. Now, if they're not, in other words, if the Taiwanese are something different, if they're Taiwanese, well, then that kind of weakens China's claim on Taiwan, doesn't it? So that's, that's the, the first and foremost thing. Uh, the second thing that's important for people to understand is that Taiwan is the linchpin of what's called the first island chain. Uh, and that's a very important strategic concept where you have uh, these island chains in the Pacific Ocean. The first one, uh, depending on you know how you look at the map, could start up at Kamchatka or Sakhalin and goes to Japan and then Taiwan and then down to the Philippines. And for China to be able to exercise significant power beyond its borders, it needs to break through that first island chain. It needs to have the ability to project power beyond that. And if it has Taiwan, it's going to be able to do that uh, very effectively. Uh, so there are strategic considerations uh, regarding uh, Taiwan, and there are uh, kind of geopolitical, or, or I would even say uh, moral considerations regarding Taiwan uh, in the sense that Taiwan's very existence uh, constitutes a mortal threat to the legitimacy of the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, and that's why there's so much tension there uh, between um, the People's Republic of China and the Republic of China uh, right. on Taiwan. All right. Well, thank you, Chuck. Uh, we could talk about it all day, but although I really wouldn't know what questions to ask because uh, I'm not an expert on this. But again, thank you very much, Chuck. Chuck is the uh, Vice President for National Initiatives at the Texas Public Policy Foundation. Thanks for being on with us today. Thank you. And thanks to all you, all my listeners, for joining us again today on episode 66 of the Liberty Cafe. And also thanks to the Texas Scorecard, our sponsor. Thank you for listening to The Liberty Cafe by Texas Scorecard. You can find more shows and great content at texasscorecard.com. Please consider leaving a review or rating the show on whatever podcasting platform you listen on.